Well, good evening and welcome to this uh, session of Internet uh, Live, uh, Hand Internet Live session from AO Trauma. We are doing this uh, Sage on Stage um, today. So we'll go ahead and today our Sage is Dr. Louis Shecker. Uh, he's uh, just retired from the uh, University of Louisville and Planet Coots and Associates. Um, and my name is Amit Gupta. I'll be uh, interviewing. And our moderator is uh, Kevin Malone from Cleveland, Ohio. So um, welcome, Dr. Shekhar. It is indeed a pleasure to, and an honor uh, for me to talk to you today. Uh, I've known Dr. Shekhar for over 30 years. Um, he's my teacher, my partner, and my friend. I've seen many surgeons from around the world but I can categorically state that no one comes close to Dr. Louis Shecker in the art of surgery and microsurgery. The finesse and panache of his superb clean dissections are a joy to behold. Although he's a plastic surgeon, uh, trained with the finest in Canisburn in Glasgow, Scotland, like masters like Ian McGregor, who was the inventor of the groin flap, Ian Jackson, Bob Acklin, Gus McGrather, but he's also an extremely good orthopedic surgeon and his bone work is uh, wonderful. Most importantly, he's a great thinker and has developed many procedures and concepts. So let's just explore some of the things he's taught us over the years. Uh, welcome, Dr. Shecker. Um, let's start with the first thing called policization. Well, uh, go ahead and first, of all, first of all, Amit, let me thank you for organizing this and to Dr. Mugal for the kind invitation. Hello, everybody. Uh, uh, welcome to the, this uh, Sage on Stage. I hope that we can pass some information. We have some intervals every now and then for anybody who want to ask a question or, or something like that. Yes, I mean, and thank you very much indeed uh, uh, for you to be the interviewer. Thank you. Well, tell us a little bit about the history of policization. Yes. Um, well, uh, the history of policization um, date from uh, sometime in the past, uh, probably by 1940, uh, some of the people started to do uh, a politicization in the United States, 1946. And the classification for uh, the deformities and the formation of the human hand was described by Mueller in 1937. And he had four types of uh, hypotrophic thumb. Then Blout, about 20 years, uh, 30 years later, in 1967, then he described uh, another uh, type of uh, malformation. So he made five type of uh, hypoplastic thumb. The first uh, politicization report was by Kelikian from Chicago in surgery, a gynecology of obstetry, 1946. The first, and then uh, Littler had done politicization in adults. The first politicization in uh, congenital was done by Eduardo Sancoli, who published that in the American 
John Aboyne uh, surgery in 1960. He did a transplantation of the thumb, but he left a little bit of the uh, base of the metacarpal, the second metacarpal, and connected the head to that one. In 1971, one uh, very clever individual, Dieter Bogranko from Hamburg, he uh, published a paper about the polycystic index finger method and the uh, result in hypoplasia. He was uh, a very uh, great surgeon and he changed how to create flap uh, for the for the, for the polycystic excising the, the meta, second metacarpal completely, rotating the head 120 degrees, though, because we don't have really a good opposition after, afterward. We really have mainly a, a doctor, a doctor uh, a plastic gone there. He used suture, uh, a non-absorbable uh, material to uh, secure the head of the metacarpal uh, into the position now being the base of the new thumb. So <clears throat> that's the history. Um, uh, tell us about classification of the hypoplastic thumb and what do you do to treat uh, each of the types of hyperplasia? Yes, well, uh, Blout uh, classify type one with being a thumb that is smaller, but high functional and doesn't require any type of treatment. Then, in type two is a thumb that is smaller than the normal thumb. There is uh, no thinner eminence or is hypoplastic. Uh, the muscles are not working well. And that leads to an adduction contracture of the first wet space and laxity of the ulnar collateral ligament. In these cases, we need to reconstruct the ulnar collateral ligament, like uh, you can see in this case here. Uh, taking a flap from the thumb that is placed here in the first word space and take a tendon and do an opponent's plastic, a doctor plastic with it and pass it through the head of the metacarpal and then to the base of the proximal phalanx and you create in that way a good uh, ulnar collateral ligament. In type three, you have the same problem of type two plus the absence uh, or you have a vestigial carpal metacarpal joint. Uh, in these cases, the intrinsic muscles are absent and the extrinsic tend to be rudimentary or completely absent. So you invest a lot of tissue in trying to reconstruct uh, a type three thumb and you burn the bridges as was written by Paul uh, Mansky that say that in type three, if you try to do a reconstruction, it doesn't work you lose the chance to do a polycization. That is operation to be done type three in type four because the floating thumb, there's nothing going for that individual here. There is a little bit uh, artery vein and a little nerve there, but you cannot reconstruct that at all. And in the type five is the total absence and you need a polycization as well. Littler in 1953 and Riordan in 1955 wrote about the uh, the transposition of the index finger by litter and the congenital absence of the radius by Riordan, that was a, a, a genius doing radial club hand. And they both say that the best thing is to give the, the child a thumb that is have good mobility, have good sensation, got uh, joint stability, so that they can have very good 
outcome uh, in the Thai tree. So our idea is uh, three, four, and five we do politicization. Okay. Uh, what is the ideal age in your uh, opinion of uh, politicization? Well, I prefer to do it at the age of six months because at that time, the child is already uh, mature enough that can, the immune system is working, can fight infection, uh, have enough blood so you don't have any problem uh, in breeding child. And the, the, the planning or the, the training of the brain in the function of the hand had not, had not started because it started at 10 months. If we do it by six months, then by, by nine months, the stomach is functional and therapy can help us to get the child to incorporate that function into the manipulation of object. All right. Well, um, Louis, you taught me how to do a good policization. Uh, can you please share with us your technique of uh, policization? Yeah. Uh, Amit, in, in our book, The Growing Hand, there's a good chapter about the policization. And uh, some of this is more or less what we have there. The first thing that we need to do in, in politicization is create flaps. And everybody creates flaps in their own ideas. What is important is to have two flaps in the dorsal, as dorsal aspect of the index finger that can be interjudicated with the thinner muscle, uh, thinner flap. The thinner flap needs to be aiming at the long finger because the index is not going to be there. A common mistake is to do the, the flap aiming to the index finger, and then when the index finger is not there, the finger, the thumb is not going to match the long finger. The second thing uh, there is uh, the pl planning done. We do a kind of C pluses in this area, and then we excite the skin that we don't need. For the venous uh, pedicle, what we do is we don't exsanguinate with a smart because the, the vein is going to be uh, removed from the, from the uh, index finger. In this way, we have vein, uh, blood in the vein, and we can see the vein and elevate the, uh, the uh, venous pedicle. Then we can turn to the palm of the hand, and we elevate the, the uh, skin from the base of the, from proxima to the crease in the uh, PIP joint. Those, that's going to be the length of the thumb in, in the hand. And then we tease apart the uh, common digital nerve and separate them from the uh, radial nerve to the long finger and uh, ulnar nerve to the index finger. So we can mobilize that without any problem. Then we ligate the common digital artery and we are going to uh, put in these cases two suture because in case of any problem, we can put a, a vein graft uh, for the long finger. Never see any problem, but it's a safety thing to do that. Then uh, we move to, I don't know why I cannot see, my slides are too big and you cannot see the lower part there, but uh, the, the uh, next point is to go to the pulley system and split the, the pulley system onto the A3 pulley, and the A3 pulley is here, and then that is going to be the A1 pulley, new thumb. Then we uh, separate the uh, extensor apparatus into three slips. We dissect the intrinsic muscle, no with periosteum. We take it without the periosteum, because during the periosteum, the periosteum will form bone and create deformity and stiffness in the new thumb. 
we remove the head of the second metacarpal as uh, was taught by Dita Bogranco using a beaver blade in that area. So we cut the cartilage there and that, the head is not going to grow any uh, tissue proximally. Then we uh, can remove the whole second metacarpal and rotate 120 degrees. I do 140 because I cannot make the thumb to oppose with, with a tendon. You need to have uh, another uh, surgery that I prefer to do it later in life uh, to get in opposition. But ne I never, I get more an adoption than a real opposition. And then the, ex the extended metacarpal head is sutured in position with non-absorbable material. Once we have the thumb in the position we want like that, uh, in non-absorbable suture, then we go ahead and place these flaps around this uh, tissue here. So we put the A flap on the palmar aspect and the B flap on the uh, dorsal aspect of the, uh, the thinner flap. Then the tendon need to be tensioned properly and have the extensor policies, uh, indices proprios to become the extensor policies longer. The extensor, the tendon common is put to the base uh, of the metacarpal to work kind of in a abductor uh, uh, longus. Then we place the first dosa interosia, we put to the radius slip and form the abductor policy brevis, and then we use the first parma interosia to uh, go as a uh, adductor of the of the, the thumb. We trim the, the skin on the on the thumb just that we don't have too much redundant skin. We create a nice wet space and we trim this skin, uh, trying to have no straight line there, but do a, a kind of a angle in, in so that we don't have contraction as a child grows. Once we finish the operation, we take those uh, holding stitches out, put the child in a long arm cast, and uh, when they come to the office after, after uh, a, a month, we put then uh, an autoplast brace and we keep it for at least uh, three to six months until the flexor tendon become competent. As the child grows, the flexor tendon become tight and then he can have full flexion of the thumb. The results that we have from those cases are very good. Uh, you can see the child can pinch, they can hold larger objects, they can manipulate the hand very well in everything. And they can hold the coin, and you, this is what we need to have. In opposition to the long finger that have continued to lie, so we don't have how to rotate properly the thumb because we don't have an opponent's policy there, and everything that we bring there pull the thumb more or less in abduction, but doesn't rotate the thumb. If we uh, do a, 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 a polycization in the four-finger hand, we lose the normal arc of the hand. If we are lucky enough to have a polycization in five-finger hand, then we end up with a hand that has four fingers and the thumb, and the x-ray looks like a normal hand. And those children can then use uh, the pencil like a normal hand, can even play the guitar fingering uh, normally. But that is a, it's a very rare to have five finger hand. So that's a beautiful uh, exposition of the uh, methods of polycization. What are the pitfalls and complications of uh, this, uh, this procedure? 
most of the time is imbalanced. Uh, leaving too much skin in, in, in the palm of the hand, so the wet space is all a bit extended, putting no right tension in the extensor tendon, and uh, that gives the deformity like that, like a zigzag in the, the new thumb. That is one of the problems of not planning very well. Uh, the other problem we have is we have a good thumb if we have good index finger. This is a radial club hand, and you can see the long finger has some extension the deficit there, uh, the joint are stiff, so are the, 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 the stiff uh, index finger. So we end up with a post, and the child for fine manipulation will use the small finger, the ring finger, that are the two best developed fingers in the radial club hand. Okay. What are the rehabilitation challenges in polycization? The most important thing is to send the child to the therapy for the therapy to train the parents and first of all in the, in the applying the brace properly. Uh, so the child need to have a bath, a bath or whatever, and then back to the brace until the thumb is competent. And then after the child can move the thumb, they uh, teach them how to manipulate things with a new thumb. Because uh, the child at the six months of age doesn't have yet an, an idea how the thumb is going to move in that hand because it used to be an index finger, extended finger, but they can learn to manipulate that and therapy helps us a lot in that. Well, uh, before we move on, um, Kevin, are there any uh, questions that we need to answer or Dr. Shekhar needs to answer? No, your, uh, your explanations must be excellent because uh, no, no questions have been posted yet. Uh, to the audience, if you do have questions for Dr. Shecker, please type them into the Q&A uh, section on the bottom of your screen, and uh, I'll be happy to uh, ask them to uh, Dr. Shecker and Dr. Gupta. Well, thank you, Kevin. Um, let's move on then. <clears throat> uh, Dr. Shecker has been in the forefront of the concept of immediate reconstruction in complex hand injuries. Uh, so, Louis, can you tell us a little bit about the history? Where did this concept uh, uh, come from? Where did this knowledge come from? And how did it take such a strong root in Louisville, uh, so much so that it came to be defined as the Louisville School? Well, I mean, uh, you came to Louisville. You could choose anywhere to go. You came to Louisville because Harold Klein, I have a magnetic personality. I have, he had the cream of the crop coming to him. So we have a very powerful group of young people that could work empty hours and helping to reconstruct absolutely everything. You remember uh, when initially you came, we have four operating rooms going the whole night long with amputation, with severe fracture and everything. We had uh, the early microsurgical reconstruction co uh, uh, with microsurgery uh, was for the extremity was a bird that published in 1981. Marco Godina, uh, it wrote this one, uh, Lister wrote this one for him, posthumous, uh, 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 after he had an unfortunate death in 1986. Then we, uh, Peter Stern protected me when in a post-Congress meeting in, uh, in, in, uh, in Indiana, uh, we were attacked because we presented the idea of emergency free flap. And they thought it was my practice. Well, now I establish everywhere. Now everybody knows that it can be done. And that was done because we had a gentleman by the name of Marco Godina that was 
in Cannes, and then came to Louis was a fellow in uh, November 1978. He was an excellent microsurgeon, but also a fantastic thinker. He is the gentleman that saved a hand, uh, connecting it to the axilla, to save the hand until the stump of the forearm was uh, clean and healed, and because it also partly damaged, that he thought that they were going to get infected and the hand will not survive in the replantation. He described early the Britman uh, of the wound as cancer uh, surgery, where you don't see the cancer, you elevate everything away from that. And that is the best way to, re to remove uh, the, the dead tissue. This is one of those cases, road traffic accident, you really don't have a clue what is underneath this, this part of the skin because it was a friction burn, the skin was moved everywhere. So following Marco Godina's idea, we go ahead and cut to healthy tissue, and then elevate all around, as you can see, we see left behind clean tissue. Elevate the wound and excite the wound, and when we finish, we have a clean wound that we can do absolutely anything we want to do there. So the planning, of these cases is to see what tissues are involved and what need to be replaced and trying to see uh, like for like. Change tissue, the same tissue that, that you have, uh, a patient is missing. L look at this road traffic accident. It was an icy road and the patient, the arm went out of the, of the car. And this is the injury bone sticking out, a lot of severe uh, soft tissue injury everywhere. We had to take this one and do a debridement or everything that didn't look normal had to be cut. We shortened the, the, the bone to have good uh, fine uh, edges and be able to close it. And when we did that, this is a reconstruction we did, we, didn't, we couldn't save the joint because we were not ready to put a bone graft in this area. We want everything to be live. So we uh, shortened the uh, extensor and flexor tendon, uh, the muscular tendinous junction, uh, all the muscle, and the panicular deposit of the lady was so big that we couldn't put a, a, any uh, a skin flap there. So we went to the latissimo dorsal, the working horse for, every, for everybody. Put a, the flap in this area, the hand survived, we revascularized everything. We uh, then put mesh graft uh, on top of the, the, the muscle. That one you say here is a photoplatismo graft to make sure that the flap had uh, normal uh, capillary refill there. And this is the reconstruction we did, uh, the fixation. And there's a patient now supinating and pronating and opening the finger flexing. An acceptable reconstruction uh, or result for that type of, uh, that, that type of injury. Well, very good. Uh, then can you uh, sh show us some cases where you've been able to restore function in these uh, complex hand injuries doing this immediate uh, reconstruction with internal fixation and uh, flap yeah, coverage? Yeah, yeah. Right yes. Uh, first of all, uh, let me show you a, an injury of uh, this poor individual. is a, uh, a general manager. Of, a, of the supermarket. He's going at four o'clock in the morning to his shop. And then two semi, 18 wheeler were competing in the fog and someone hit him head on collision. 
not only he fractured the elbow, he fractured the ulna, the radial head, he had fracture of the right tibia, he fractured the left ring finger, uh, a big mess. And this is what the elbow looked like. The olecranon process, the, uh, the other part of the, the ulna is here, the radial head have a, a, a piece of tissue missing there, collateral ligaments are all pulled apart. So we fixed everything, the collateral ligament, did the fixation of the, of, of the, the bone in the way we could, putting a plate for the radio, putting a, a screw from the owner and cover this one with a rectus abdominal slab. Why? Because they were fixing the tibia at the same time we were working on the arm. And then we covered that later with a, with a mesh graft. The patient, uh, we used the, 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 the rectus abdominus because the patient was lying supine in the, in the, the operating table. And uh, if we had no injury in this area, probably we have used a lateral flap, but we use a muscle flap, work well. We told the patient about having something during the ulna. I said, no, no, as a manager, I can do very well. It's my left hand, I, my right hand is moving well, so thank you. Then we have all kinds of injury, uh, crush, avulsion, blast, mix, motor vehicle accident. And you remember when uh, you were uh, taking cold at night there, uh, you spend the night with all your fellow doing the everyday thing, corn picker injuries and uh, rollers and everything. So uh, we have one gentleman that came with a grain uh, auger injury. And this is what happened. Uh, he fractured the, the, the ulna in two places, the radius in one place. Well, uh, we had to break the rules because that's what he had. The radial artery is here. The muscles are separated from the tendon. This muscle, we have no function, but we need to debris this one. This muscle survives, so we put all this tendon to this muscle. So he ended up with kind of two uh, profundas. See, all the PIP flexing together, all the, uh, the, all the uh, PIP together. Uh, then we reconstructed the radial artery. We, the radial, the median nerve had to be covered with some muscle flap on top there. And we broke the rule. The rule say, put, no, put two plates in the same arm. If we did that, we're going to lose blood supply to that same segment here, and probably to that one as well. So we put a plate where we didn't interfere the blood supply of, of the bone. He healed well. Uh, we had to put temporary uh, flap to cover the radial artery. We put the rest mesh uh, graft to the, cover the rest. We removed the plate later, everything healed well. We sh uh, took the skin graft off and reduced the flap to the uh, side that he needed. And he had full fist, extension, pronation, and supination. Sometimes we have cases that are not such a big injury, but very important. Losing the thumb and losing the index finger and the middle finger is very important. So we, in this case, I can go ahead and replant the, the thumb. The middle finger have no uh, a, a skeleton passing the middle or the middle phalanx, and the index finger was denuded on the uh, radial side, but the flexor tendon and the joint were intact. So we managed to uh, elevate a flap from the first space of the foot, taking the, uh, profund, the, the, profund, the peroneal profundus 
and also the tibia, the fibula, these uh, are near to the to the toe. Uh, put a flap uh, to cover the, the exposed part or the uh, index finger. All this flap just cover that part of the index finger. Uh, if you think that you have too much flap for the index finger, you'd never have enough. We put a little bit of skin graft here, and the patient uh, healed well. He had the two-point discrimination was around eight millimeter, but he had full flexion of the index finger because the tendon were intact. He regained flexion of the, the thumb and uh, had uh, a, a approximate uh, the same six uh, to eight millimeter, the two-point discrimination of the thumb. One side six and one side eight millimeter, but the hand can work well. We have cases we have a flexor tensor tendon injury, and uh, in the past we used to do uh, multiple stages, and we found problem when we use tendon rod because the tendon got adhesion when the rod uh, was removed, the tendon was passed there, and then eventually the silicone induced constrictive fibrosis in those cases. And for that reason, you have three weeks of everything moving, and after three weeks, things start to lose, to lose motion in those cases. And that's when you have extension of flexion deficit, and we end up with multiple reconstructive procedures. This is a, the uh, multiple reconstructive procedure with, with rod and everything else, the maximum extension, the maximum flexion. Why is that? Because in this case, we lost the magic of the rhombus of Winslow. If we pull the long uh, extensor through here, they got, we are going to extend the PIP joint and through the, the lateral uh, a, a tendon, we are going to extend the PIP joint if we re, uh, uh, reduce the hyperextension of the MP joint. So we decided to start, if we could do reconstruction of uh, putting a free flap, why not to combine with other things, like uh, one, uh, one stage approach. And this is a young man with a car accident, a road traffic accident, and you can see the palm of the hand is intact, the torso of the hand is damaged. Following uh, the, the idea of uh, Marco Godina, cutting through the healthy tissue, do the proper debridement, and we end up we had to curate all that because there was dirt in, in the in the carpus and the base of the metacarpal, but we have no extensive tendon to the long finger to the index finger. For this case, we use a lateral flap, and the reason we use lateral flap is because we have a good panicular adiposal there that is going to help us. So we mark how much the flap, how much flap we need, and then it starts from the posterior aspect where the, the flap is going from the lateral epicondyle to the insertion of the deltoid, that's the axis of the flap. And then we start elevating for the posterior aspect and create a tunnel for each tendon. How do we create a tunnel? Well, we insinuate a closed scissor and then a spread. Remove the scissor, close again, insinuate, push a little bit further and open. In that way, we don't kill the vessel. And we have a tunnel that allows to pass a forceps all the way to the flap, take the extensive tendon from the foot, pass it to each one of those tendons, do pubertas with a both end, close the wound, put the patient in a tensile rigor, and after uh, uh, two weeks, the patient can uh, move well. If this is after four weeks, that everything is healed 
and you have full extension of the finger and full flexion of the hand. Well, sometimes we have cases that are a little bit more involved. And in those cases, uh, we need to make sure that the volar aspect is the only injury. The volar aspect is intact, the hand is the only injury, and healthy tissue is left after the radical debridement. In this case, the palmar aspect is intact, but he has a lot of damage to the extensor tendon and the intrinsic muscle there. What we need to do is, first of all, do a good debridement. This is the dorsal aspect, and we need to take all this thing out. And after we do, this is what we're left with. We have muscle that have been damaged. The dorsal muscle were gone. We have a gap between the third and the fourth metacarpal, and the fifth metacarpal is just bone, a bunch of a small spicule bone. The head is floating free there. We took a bone graft from the iliac crest and put a stabilizing plate for the third and the fourth metacarpal. And here we put a K wire to the head and put some, uh, the head, the K wire goes from the head to the base and then put a speckle of bone around the head with a clash of wire. A large uh, amount of fascia around the flap, so we can extend passing where the plates were. And we uh, took the tendon graft from the foot, and that's what the schematic, these are great, great bones usher that, that uh, did a diagram uh, of what we did for that case. The, the hand is closed, so you have tendon passing to the long finger, to the, uh, to the ring finger, and to the small finger. In uh, the first 40, uh, 20, 48 hours, we put an extensor rigor block in the MP joint. And when the patient comes to the office, we put a crane out rigor that also block the MP joint but allow flexion of the finger protecting the tendon there. This is the finger, uh, the patient opening the hand. They can make a fist, and the donor side had to be grafted. He didn't want to have metal in his body, so he asked us to remove those plates afterward. And this is a, a case beforehand, and that's a case after, after or afterward, maintaining the arch of the metacarpal head. Well, sometimes we have uh, more problem with the joint. Like uh, in this particular case, it's a young uh, lady, uh, 16, 17 years of age, and the fifth metacarpal head has been replaced by pebble with a car accident. We, once again, start doing the, the, the dissection to healthy tissue all around, elevate the wound and excite the wound. After we excite the wound, this is what we found. The third metacarpal, fourth metacarpal, and the, the fifth metacarpal head, the, the head is all destroyed, so have no vascularized uh, tissue going there to the joint. We didn't think it was going to survive. We didn't want to have anything without blood supply under the flap. So we took everything out, washed the hand with peroxide and bacitracin, and that's what it looks like after you take all the blood and clean everything. The hand looking very good. We decided to do a palmar plate atroplasty, taking the, the, the palmar plate that is attached to the proximal phalanx and suture in the back. You see one of the, the sesamoid bone there. Went to the groin because in a girl you don't want to put a large defect in the lateral aspect of the of the forearm especially it's a beautiful uh, girl you don't want to put big scar there in this case we uh, 
switch of the flapping position we're going to go and where the tendon we're going to pass. Once again, we insinuated the scissor doing the same thing. We put the, took the tendon from the foot and then do tendon graft, tendon graft and puberta with a boss end. This is at the end of the procedure. The large amount of tissue to cover once the swelling goes down, we don't need uh, that much tissue. The donor side was closed directly, and when it heals, there's no big scar to show. Uh, because even if she has short, nothing is showing there. And this is a function of the hand uh, extension, uh, flexion. You can see the PIP joint, uh, the PIP joint and DIP joint, or the small finger flex well. The MP joint doesn't flex all that well. But after severe trauma, that's an acceptable result. Amit, the, the, your microphone. Yeah, okay. thank you. Yeah. Thank you, thank you very much. Those were excellent cases. Um, now we uh, stop here and ask Kevin if we have any questions for Dr. Shekhar. We do have some good questions from our audience here, uh, okay. really related to this uh, second section. Yes. Uh, the first one was, you know, when you're faced with the decision of attempted limb reconstruction and salvage versus uh, primary early amputation, uh, you know, how do you, how do you go through, what are the, what are the, what's the process of making that decision as to whether or not this patient is a good candidate for limb salvage? An equation. What is good and what is missing? If you have good muscle, you have good nerve, uh, and you have bone that can be reconstructed and part that can be covered and later do uh, muscle flaps or whatever to power the part that is missing, then you reconstruct. If everything is useless, if you don't have anything that can be saved and the patient is not going to have sensation, the most important thing is nerve. Uh, having good nerve uh, sensation, uh, then you can reconstruct most of the things. Sometimes we uh, used to do some of the uh, circular flap, taking a large growing flap and maybe a latissimo dorsal flap, have two flaps to cover the whole thing or the arm because believe me, to cover a forearm you need uh, you need a lot of tissue to do that when you have circumferential syn injury. Then you need to see what it can be safe and what can some function. If you have uh, three or four tendons that, that a muscle that can work, you can always bring uh, gracilis to power either the flexor or extensor, and even sometimes you can a mechanical hand having just a flexor that extends the finger and a extensor that flexes the finger by doing a tenodesis of the tendon in the radius, both the flexor and the extensor, so that when you flex the hand, the finger open, when you extend the hand, flex the wrist, the finger open, you extend the wrist, the finger closed, if you have sensation for the hand. And sometimes you'd use the um, uh, parts that have that uh, you're going to uh, amputate, and you can use them to uh, for for reconstruction, right? Sure. Uh, sometimes we have fingers that cannot be uh, put in the in the finger itself, but we use it to reconstruct the thumb, the same hand. And sometimes we bilateral, and one hand uh, is the donor for the other hand because one hand might not have good function, and we end up having thought transfer in the future. Thank you. Kevin, more questions? Sure. With, with uh, one of the cases you presented, Dr. Shecker, involved a very high energy uh, both bone forearm fracture. And what are your thoughts about forearm synostosis and, and how you potentially can uh, minimize that uh, when treating injuries like that? 
have some tissue between bones. So you avoid the synostosis. The most uh, the reason of synostosis most of the time is leaking, leaking uh, bone marrow more than anything else. Uh, so you need to put something that the leaking, the bone marrow that leak out of the bone is separated by some t soft tissue there. And with your uh, extensor transfers, when you're harvesting your extensors from the feet, uh, is there a limit to how many extensors you can take from a foot without causing significant uh, dysfunction well, of the foot? You remember you, remember you have, the, the most toes have two extensors. And you take the longest, and then they can extend, extend the toe with the, 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 the short extensor. Uh, we, we, most of the time, we take three extensors from the foot. And how quickly are you starting therapy with those patients uh, after those extensor reconstruction procedures? As soon as the patient is out of the out of the anesthesia, then we uh, put the patient most of the time in 48 hours. Now we know that everything is going well. The the, the flow in of the vessel that we reconstructed are doing well. Then we put the patient extensor of rigor that we make in the operating room ourselves. We used to have a, a cast room to do all those cases uh, two days later. And then when they come to the office, we send the patient to, uh, to brace. Meantime, the, 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 our people from therapy used to come to the hospital to help the patient to function where they were admitted. Most of the patient with free flap, we admitted for at least five days, make sure that everything was perfect uh, before the patient went home. And then the final question is, you know, Lending off of the whole spare parts uh, issue that you were discussing, you know, taking parts with your flap. So, you know, bringing a uh, cutaneous nerve with a flap. The one mentioned here is the medial sural artery flap and bringing the sural nerve for sensory uh, restoration in the hand. Is that something that you would uh, incorporate? It's, it's always important. In the lateral flap, we have a, the, the lower, uh, the, the lower uh, lat lateral arm uh, nerve, not the posterior uh, forearm but the lateral uh, arm nerve that goes together with, with posterior uh, cutaneous nerve of the, of the forearm. We preserve that one. We take with us the forearm, the, the, the nerve that go to the uh, to lateral arm flap, and that gives us some protective sensation, no very, no very discrimination, but, but protective sensation in the flap. Perfect, thanks so much. Thanks, uh, thanks, Kevin. Um, thank you, uh, Dr. Shekhar. Let's move on to the next and uh, the last part. Uh, Dr. Shekhar is perhaps best known for his work on the distal radiana joint replacement. In fact, he made his own company and he's part owner of Aptus Medical. We have to mention that. Uh, what is less well known, however, is that he has been the pioneer in developing the body of knowledge about the DRUJ. In the 1990s, when all this research was going on in our Kleinert Institute, we used to joke that for Louis Shecker, the D-R-U-J was actually S-O-S, or the seat of the soul. So he did the original work on the stability of the D-R-U-J, defined that the D-R-U-J is a weight-bearing joint. He even described a ligament reconstruction for the unstable D-R-U-J that was the inspiration uh, for the Adams procedure. Well, Dr. Shekhar, tell us a little bit about uh, the weight-bearing aspects of the DREJ. Yeah. Uh, well, the radiona joint is one only one. We have 
separated surgeon into wrist surgeon and elbow surgeon. But then what happened with the DIUJ and the PIUJ? It's one joint, a two hemi joint. Uh, Kagor and Heger was a genius, or is a genius, but he now retired. And he was the one that put the seed that the head of the ulna was important for weight bearing. Most unfortunately, we have in the literature that are three elbow flexors. And everybody in the audience know that they uh, say the breaker, uh, the biceps brachii, the breaker radialis, and the brachialis anterior. So uh, let's do this interactive uh, lecture. First of all, let me show you what happened with the biceps. This is a electro myo a myogram of a gentleman, one of the fellows, uh, that was researching the function of the muscle and forearm. And this is impronation, and this is supination. You saw impronation, there's not much function of the uh, bicep brachii, because it's first of all a supinator, then an elbow flexor. What about the vertical radialis? Do me a favor, all of you. Push one hand with the other one and resist the extension, and you're going to see the vertical radialis contracting there. Now, put your hand in the triceps and try to contract the vertical radialis without contracting the, the uh, triceps. So you contract the triceps, the triceps and the vertical radialis together, you have the so co-contraction or spasticity in the children that have brain injury because the effector uh, the, 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 the muscles that counteract each other, the flexor and stents are fighting together, and that doesn't allow really good motion. So the break radialis is not really, has nothing to do with flexion of the elbow, it is a modulator of the extension. Finally, the brachialis anterior is the only pure, pure uh, elbow flexor that works 24 hours a day. Where does it insert? Insert this tattooed coronoid process of the ulna. Together with the tricep that insert in the olecranon, they have the function of the ulna. The function of the ulna is flexion and extension. Flexion and extension, nothing else. The ulna doesn't do anything, but it's the most important part of the forearm. It's the, it's the axis of the forearm. The radius rotate around there. The radius cannot form an elbow joint by itself because it doesn't have a trochlea. It's a ball, very shallow ball and socket. Uh, and but half a function of the radio is to pronate the hand to write and supinate the hand to get money and combining the owner and the radio they put the hand in a functional position but the radius is supported by the owner all the time doesn't matter which position it is if you excite the radio head the owner is still going to be uh, supporting the owner. In, uh, the owner is going to be supporting the radio. In this way, you have the uh, brachialis anterior lifting this weight. The hand in neutral, neutral, neutral position, and lifting 50, uh, 20 pounds, the, brachia, the, uh, the brachialis anterior is the one lifting there. Now, here the uh, Deltoid is lifting because the olecranon process and olecranon fossa are locked into position. The ulna is fixed. Now the radius is riding for free on top of the ulna. So the ulna will support the radius all the time. The forearm manages two types of function. The axial loading is passing from the hand to the carpus, to the radius, and to the capitellum. Okay? The forces against gravity pass from the hand and the distal radius pass then through 
the head of the ulna, from there pass to the trochlea, and the humerus and it, it goes all the way down to the foot, passing different bone in your body. Tell it. microphone, microphone. What is the history of um, the direct procedure that is commonly done for uh, the distal radial joint? Uh, tell us a little bit about the history and tell us the good and the bad aspects of the direct procedure. Yeah, well, William Darak was a, a surgeon in New York and uh, reported something that also happened. But at that time, the body of knowledge, at that time, the radius was it and the ulna was subluxating. No, now we know that, is, that doesn't happen. It's the radius that fall primarily or dorsally. He proposed excising the head of the ulna because at that time, nobody had any knowledge about the function of the head of the ulna. And he prescribed a procedure that has been done uh, all over the world. It's still been done all over the world. I used to joke saying that the, the Titanic sank in the same year of that procedure was published. The Titanic only killed 1,500 people. The data procedure have made millions and millions of handicapped individuals. Why? Because uh, the, with the data procedure, you excise the head or the ulna, and the radius is going to follow the stump. Uh, if you leave anything there. If you, uh, if you do a, the so-called stabilization of the ulna stump by the stensocapionaris and the flexocapionaris, that's what we have here, Amit. We have this patient with a huge proximal row of the, of the carpus, and then this area was stabilized with tendon that insert here. Both tendon insert at the base of the small finger and uh, to stabilize the stump of the ulna, where the radius is going to collapse, as you can see here. The radius is going to fall on the stump of the ulna regardless of the amount of, of, of the procedure you do. Your microphone. What is your opinion about the, uh, what is your opinion about the Suave Kapanji procedure then? Oh, sound very sexy, Suave Kapanji, yes. But Meme uh, Kapanji read a Baldwin paper in 1921 when he said that he could restore pronation supination, didn't talk about lifting, pronation supination uh, after decision or segment of the diaphysis in those patients have ankylosed radial joint after a malunited uh, distal radius. So Kapanji, Kapanji uh, Sobe, Sobe had nothing to do with it. Sobe was the head of the unit, and every head of the unit put the name first for all the paper. Memeka Kapanji was very intelligent. He said, well, if, uh, if Baldwin could do that, I can do the atrodesis primarily, take a segment of diaphysis, and have presupination. Nobody knew about that. Even uh, we used to call it the Lowenstein procedure until Julio Talesni told us, hey guy, you need to start learning to read all the languages. In French, there is a procedure called Sobe Capanji. That's what you're doing here. And you call it Lowenstein procedure. And after that, we start to call the Sobe Capanji. This is Sobe Capanji with one screw. The radio riding on the top of the ulna. This is Sobe Capanji with two screw. The, ride, the radio riding on top of the ulna, even already. Uh, 
filing the owner there. This is a patient that had a sobekampanji done five years before he came to the clinic. The initial sobekampanji was cut the ulna, not like that, it's not cut this way, but by moving, pronating, and supinating, and the radius doing, as he's doing around here, it shaped the, the ulna as a pencil tip. And that's what you see in many of those procedures. So uh, what about the uh, match resection of Kirk Watson? It's a copy of what uh, Be Vasquez Vela uh, did uh, for rheumatoid patient. And he is the side, the head, and that was very good because rheumatoid patients have pain even at rest. They don't care that they cannot lift anything. They want to have uh, some relief of pain by not having the uh, radius, uh, the sigmoid notch, and the other head without cartilage, grinding every mo motion that they have. Then. Uh, he, they published, he published that with Colville uh, in the Scandinavian Journal of Rheumatology, in which uh, was in English. Then Watson, Rue, and Burgess published the match this time on a resection, and they talk about uh, how things work and uh, about painless pronation uh, and supination with 80, very good pronation supination. And then that was done. Uh, did it describe what was done. But then in this paper with Gabusa, they do the match uh, on a recession for post-traumatic arthritis. And they say a very important piece to read here. They say, this match on a recession produces a broad non-contact area throughout the 270 degrees of rotation about the distal radius. Well, the patient had, the paper had very beautiful, uh, very beautiful illustration here. And there, this one, the drawing is Masterfully done. The problem with the paper is there is no grip strength or lifting capacity. After all, these are the functions I told you before functional forearm, axial loading and lifting. If you cannot lift, you cannot put a function or lifting anything, then you don't have very good results. This is a patient with a master section and the x ray taking in the x ray table. So there is no gravity. And this is the x ray taking with the patient in neutral position, lifting the weight. Bauer uh, published something uh, in 85, just before, uh, before uh, Waxon, and he put a little bit of tissue there. Something like uh, Soteriano is doing, putting some uh, tissue in that area. And they talk about the 100% the painless pronation, supination. Well, they did something like that, not checking and lifting capacity or gripping strength. Uh, Milch was the, the first one that did ulna shortening to preserve the head of the ulna because he did that in 17 years old, uh, uh, young boy, and he didn't want to do a direct procedure and uh, make a cripple for the rest of his life. Uh, we uh, published this uh, technique we have been doing for a long time, and we rejected for the general hand surgery, the British uh, general hand surgery. Everybody rejected that because they say, well, uh, it, we have very good results with the data procedure. Well, what we did was to ask the patient to lift weight with the elbow in 90 degrees, the cassette between the body and the arm, and the beam going horizontally to the arm, and we found that the patient, all of them have been pinched. 
Okay. Uh, tell us a little bit about your indication for uh, the Shekhar procedure. Uh, well, the reason why I created, uh, and uh, I need to tell you that uh, I'm part of uh, this company, not for choice, but because no one believed that this is going to, to work. Two disturbing papers. The first one by Luke Smith and Fabric, in which they show you show us that the the angle of the sigmoid notch could change. And in this case, if you do or not, I'm very I'm a fan of honor shortening because I think that should be done uh, to try to save the joint, give the, the joint a little more time. But what you do when you have something like this, uh, when you have the, the sigmoid notch that is inverted. In those cases, you do on a shortener, you increase the pressure of the ulna and you're not going to last. Worse than that is Tolat, Stanley and Trail told us that TLUJ uh, is different because the sigmoid notch is different in many people. 42% have a flat face, but then you have a key slope, you have a C shape, and you have the S shape. So we decided that the, what we needed to do was to replace the three elements of the joint. We created a cement constraint uh, by pollen plant that doesn't need ligament reconstruction because it's self-stabilizing. And once again, I'm part owner because no big company wanted to be involved there. Now they have contacted us, but it's too late. We are having fun. We're having other implants coming out. They, unfortunately, uh, I mean, uh, I manipulated this before the conference and they are the letters are too big, so I don't know what to do there because uh, we cannot see everything. But uh, the, the, in, the indication are congenital anomalies, especially uh, myeloid deformity and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome where the ligaments are incompetent. After tumor resection, after degenerative, rheumatoid, and post-traumatic arthritis, after failure of survey procedure, a failure of other implant. The this joint provides intrinsic stability, doesn't need ligament, full process of spination, normal radial migration, variable angle, uh, angle of rotation, and the most important thing, lifting capacity. We, when we put the implant, we don't ask the patient to be immobilized. We start range of motion once the patient is out to anesthetic. We put a bulky dressing to protect the wound. Okay, um, go ahead. This well, uh, uh, I was going to uh, pass this one. Uh, Soteriano has described the uh, interposition of uh, Achilles tendon in those cases. The problem is uh, in formaldehyde deformity. This patient had uh, no sigmoid notch, didn't develop, and because there was no sigmoid notch, there was no stabilizer, they, uh, the ulna was shortened and they put this uh, Soteriano's technique here. The patient continued to have pain, and we had to take the patient to operating room, remove the tendon that didn't pre preclude the, the contact, the impingement between the radius and ulna, and couldn't take the bone anchors there, so we had to put the prosthesis between anchors, and the patient did very well, and she was so happy because she could go back and play sport with uh, especially basketball with the children. She's a golfer, she does everything. And this is her, four years later, she sent me that for home. I contacted her to see how she's doing. And she said, I have not seen you because I have no problem. I have full pronunciation and my, my hands are doing well. 
Okay, what about uh, this uh, Scott Wolf's ultra short Derek? Well, it has something good about it because when you do the shortening here, then you don't have pain in the wrist. So these belong to some other surgeon, the surgeon that do elbows. Uh, I'm just joking because you know how we have been separated into hands, uh, wrist surgeon and elbow surgeon. I put my foot in everything. Uh, if you put weight, now the pain, the impinging is proximally because the radius is going to uh, ride on the ulna. It doesn't matter. If you do these cases and you are in supination, the interosseal membrane is going to pull the radio up. Uh, the ulna flex and the pull with the interosseal membrane. In pronation, the ulna is then riding on top, uh, the radius riding on top of the ulna. In this case, we have to have a very long collar uh, for the stem of this individual because he's missing too much bone. And this is the X-ray of the patient. Uh, we took all the plates out. Uh, he didn't need that. This is, we put a, a uh, plate a little bit palmally uh, on him because we use the number 30 uh, plate. And this is him lifting 20 pound in pronation, neutral and supination. And he could go back and do regular work. We are very, very inventive surgeons. You know that we do that. Uh, if we take a technique, we combine technique. And in this case, we have combination of the Sobe Kapanji with the wide extension of the ulnar. Not in one arm, but in both arms. So the patient came with that missing ulnar from here and pain. They have a, a, a stimulator there to take the pain away. We had to remove this one never healed. It was the bone. We took the, 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 the screw out and everything came, came apart. We had to put long stem in those uh, two uh, ulna. And this is the left, short, and the radius was the longest one. She now can smile because she lift weight. And this uh, she lifting weight, they no impingement anywhere. And she went back to school as a teacher. And last time I saw her was for the 11-year follow-up. I kept many patients coming to see if there was any problem. Then at the end, we didn't have to do that because the patient uh, say that wasting time, they have no problem. So we call them and say any problem, say no, that's okay, put the child, patient doing well. This is, uh, how are we doing for time, uh, Amit? Do, we, should we cut now or continue? We're okay. Chai, okay, okay. okay. yeah. Well, the, in a uh, patient, the radius and, and the carpus fight all the time. And sometimes the carpus win. And when the carpus win, the radius for palmally creating the bone Jackson syndrome because the ulnar head is becoming prominent there and the extension to the small finger and to the ring finger are damaged by the the, uh, the head, the new cartilage. This one, we don't have a subluxating ulnar. We have a radius falling palmally and for that reason, these patients tend to lose the supination. They can pronate but they cannot supinate. And this is the result. You have a prominent ulna because the radius is falling palmally. We need to recon reconstruct this joint so that the radius can be at the level of the ulna, be stable, and reconstruct the tendon. So we went ahead, put a plate in the radius, put a stem in the ulna, and lock this one in position. Then reconstruct the extensor tendon, put the patient in a rigor the day after surgery, this is her six weeks after, after surgery. 
the operator hand, you don't see prominence of the ulna here. You see prominence on the, on the uh, left hand. She say, as soon as I have problem here, I'm running back to have the other hand done. You can see there is no prominence in this area. Prominent is there because the radius is falling palmally. Well, uh, what is the age limit for this procedure? And what are the results? Uh, there is a good paper by Mackey and Richard that say that the data procedure should be done for old people after uh, uh, old people. Well, I'm very old now, I'm 75. And I resent that paper because I don't will allow anybody to do a data procedure on me if I have a problem. I want to continue using my hand. Uh, this patient uh, had so much problem because we have in uh, we have a uh, fracture distal radius and we had uh, the fracture pass through a sigmoid notch. That was in 1979. By 1982, the patient had a fusion of the radio kappa joint and uh, uh, in that procedure. Then I inherited the patient in, 80, uh, in 87. I did in stabilizing with the two tendon uh, of the tensocapionary and flexocapionary to no avail, everything failed. So I tried to, uh, uh, to hook the radio to the ulna with two screws and a piece of bone there, it failed. So I had to make a plate. And the plate was an H plate that we put a piece of a bone graft there and it healed completely. The patient did very well from 88 until sometime uh, in the new century. She came back to see me in 2011 with severe pain in the shoulder because the hand in this position, the pronation is the shoulder, supination is the shoulder. The, she had overworked the shoulder. I told her that we could cut down uh, this fusion and put a, a plate there that we did in January 2012. Uh, the patient pain disappeared as magic because now she have pronation, supination, they have the shoulder to use. Doesn't have full pronation, doesn't have full supination, but it's good enough because the proximal radiona joint uh, didn't allow too much. We didn't want to kill that joint by doing too much. Okay, um, we have very few minutes, so quickly give us some results. Well, first of all, let me tell you, they're talking about age, age limit. This patient came with two problems, here and there. I didn't know which one was giving most of the pain, and I didn't want to operate uh, one thing, not knowing what the other was doing. Put a little bit of local anesthetic here, pain didn't change. Put a little bit of local anesthetic here, the chain changed completely. So we went ahead and replaced this one there, and he came two weeks later of the office with pronation, supination, lifting weight, the day that the stitches were removed. Uh, and then the results, we, I ended up with 386 patients, 31 of those were the pilot study where we had a large number of complications because the ulna uh, was not sealed and some of the bone marrow was escaping. We had ectopic bone formation that led to tendinitis, etc. cetera. Uh, but in, the patient in general regained about 89% uh, of the rotation of the non-injured hand and 65% of the, of the grip strength of the non-injured side. Pain change for 4.3 in the scale of 0 to 5, 4.3 to 1.1. The dash improved from 53 to 31. The PRWE uh, from 68 to 33. And grip strength improved 100%, while the lifting capacity improved 500%. Okay, excellent. Well, um, the one of the criticisms is that it's a big implant. What, what if it fails? What do you do then? What are your solutions? for salvage? 
Well, this is an infection. In this case, what you need to do is the all night is, is not loose. Go ahead and fill all the cavity with, with uh, bone substitute, put some uh, metametaclip impregnated with antibiotic there, and then come back later and put a new implant. Sometimes the implant needs a longer stem in those cases. Uh, this is one of those cases, the ulna is the, the, the part involved here. This is a big hole there, uh, is filled with bone substitute. Then uh, we cannot get back to the ulna uh, in that way. So we come uh, for the tunnel, to create a tunnel, we put a sharp uh, uh, pin in the cavity controlled by uh, image intensifier. You can see the sharp uh, coming around here. We can drill, do everything, and we shorten because this bone was not too good, put a much longer stem in that case, and uh, this is a pronation supination in the operating room uh, when we did that. Excellent. Well, Kevin, do we have any questions for Dr. Shaker? I think in the sake of time, we've got, we've got everything most covered. Those are uh, very elegant procedures you've described uh, and uh, perhaps a, a good solution for uh, a previously uh, unsolved problem. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, well, uh, in the final few minutes, uh, let's take a couple of minutes, take a trip down memory lane. Of all the sages, five of the uh, sages have been fellows at Louisville with Dr. Harold Kleiner. That's Dr. Jupiter, Dr. Stern, Dr. Peterson, Dr. Hanel, and you. There have been many ASSH presidents uh, who are Kleiner fellows, many of them your contemporaries, uh, most recently Dr. Scott Levin. Well, what made Louisville such a special place? And please tell us, uh, tell the audience a little bit about our teacher and mentor, Dr. Harold Kleiner. Harold Kleiner was an incredible human being. You remember him well because he was your teacher as well. And he attracted you to Louisville. Harold Kleiner was not a teacher. He was a master surgeon and a maestro. He was an inspiration for everybody. Uh, he would crack the whip on everybody all the time because you needed to produce papers during your, your fellowship. And when you were attending, you need to produce three or four papers a, a year. So you have to push the fellow to help you to do papers because Harold Kleiner thought that to, to move forward in the specialty, you need to put all the knowledge out and everything you find out that work, share. he used to say, if something works, you need to share it with other people and show what works. Uh, he uh, trained over uh, about 1,400 surgeons from the United States and abroad. And the, the idea of Harold Kleiner was that everybody has something to provide and to teach. So the American fellows came from more, many units where they some developing some techniques. The foreign fellows came from all over the world and came from different areas. And fellows talk to us all the time, uh, fellows to fellow, and then when you are attending, you fellow with uh, suggest things that, that you need to keep an open mind with that. Harold Kleiner was that. Harold Kleiner was bigger than life. Uh, he was general with his time to the fellows, to the patient. He never uh, rushed anybody. Patient would wait forever to see him because they wanted to, to have the opportunity to see Harold Kleiner. Sometimes the patient came, had no problem. You saw the patient before him, say, you can come back next month. He very busy. No, I want to see Harold Kleiner. Wait forever so that he, they can uh, shake hands with Dr. Kleiner and talk a little bit of the family, etc. Uh, the only thing I can tell you is there never be another Harold Kleiner. He, for me, was a father figure, uh, father figure like for all of us because 
he nurtured us and push us forward all the time. Well, that brings us to the end of this uh, session. I would like to thank Dr. Louis Shecker. Thank you very much for your time and for sharing your experience and your thoughts with us. Um, AO North America thanks you uh, and me and uh, Jai Mudgal, we thank you personally and all the AO Hand Committee thanks you. Thank you very much and uh, appreciate your time. <laughs>